I'll let you guys know who I am. If you don't know, because I know there's a lot of new faces around here, my name is Ricky Ragone. I am the music and arts and youth pastor here uh, at the church. And this morning we are continuing through our study in the gospel according to Luke called Mission to the World. Um, so if you have your Bibles in whatever medium or format you prefer, please make sure you are in Luke chapter 8. We're going to be looking, as Mike read so well, uh, verses 8 through uh, verses 4 to 15. Um, so in case you need to... There we go. In case you need to see it. Verses 4 through 15. So I'll just I'll put this out there too, just so you guys can be at ease. Because I know what happens when I stand up here to preach. Things go wrong. No videos. No pictures. As little as possible that could possibly cause this screen to go haywire. <laughs> Doesn't mean I won't go haywire, but at least the technology. So anyway, over the past few weeks, what we've we've seen why this series is really called Mission to the World. Right? We saw Jesus' mission to the centurion and his servant as Jesus sees the faith of a centurion and heals his servant, ministering across cultural lines. He even he turns to the crowd that's with him and he says, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. We saw Jesus' mission to the widow and her son in that town of Nain. As the widow's son is being carried out before him, dead. And Jesus has compassion on her as as she's crying and he says, do not weep. And moments later he brings this young man back to life. As he says, young man, I say to you, arise. And the man sat up. People in fear, people in awe. And this report goes out to all Judea and the surrounding country. And Jesus' reputation and his influence is continuing to increase in that region as he ministers. Last week we saw Jesus' mission to the the woman of the city. right? As as Jesus sits in the house of Simon the Pharisee and this, this woman who Luke identifies as a sinner crashes the gathering in order to come in and wash Jesus' feet with her tears and wipe them with her hair and anoint them with ointment. A woman of the city who is either used and abused by men or looked down on by the Pharisees and other religious leaders comes to Jesus to honor him, to seek some compassion. And Jesus sees this woman's brokenness and doesn't say, get off of my feet. No. He, he, he sees her brokenness, and he sees her faith, and he says, your sins are forgiven. And Simon, the Pharisee, can only see this woman according to her sin. In that same story, we really see Jesus' mission to Simon as he tells this parable of canceled debts, trying to convey, convey to him the, the forgiveness and the grace of God that, that Simon has missed in all of his study of the Scriptures. Jesus knows the hardness of Simon's heart, but still takes the time to teach and instruct him, knowing others are looking on and seeing and listening as well. We see the beginning of this chapter as we wrapped up in last week. Jesus' mission to the world includes women. Luke mentions them specifically. At that time, women not, not honored 
and as a part of society in general, but Jesus honors them. He ministers to them. He sees their value as fellow image bearers of God. We see them named Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Susanna. He not only ministers to them, but they, they join and they follow. That's their response. Gratitude, service, worshiping out of their means. Because Jesus showed them the gospel and showed them who he was. Each story of, of Jesus ministering and healing, there's a crowd that, that seems to follow him and it just keeps growing more and more. And as we arrive at our text this morning here, in, in verses 4 to 15, we see Jesus is surrounded by what Luke says, a great crowd. And he begins to teach them. So as we look at Jesus' teaching, we'll see it really through two main headings, um, which of course will have some sub points, because you can't get out of here with just two points. But they're shorter. So revelation, and when there's revelation, there's responses. So we'll look at the four responses of the soils here. So let's start with Revelation chapter 8, verse 4. And a great crowd was gathering, and the people from the town after town came to him. He said in a parable. We'll just stop right there. There's a great, great crowd gathering. People from all different towns, regions are coming, they're converging on Jesus to hear him teach. And we see in Matthew's and Mark's account of this that as this crowd comes, Jesus actually steps into a boat and teaches from the water. Now, it's not that he wanted to maintain six feet of distance from them at all times or anything like that. Um, there's actually could be a practical application that the way that was structured, there was actually, he could, his voice could reach more people from the water than it could from the beach. Or there's just so many people on the beach, there's no other place to go. He's like, I guess I'm preaching from the water. But there's just a huge crowd, a multitude. And Jesus tells them this parable about agriculture. Probably not what they were expecting. They are probably hoping to see some, some healings or heal something amazingly uh, profound. They probably weren't expecting a lesson on soils and sowing seed. But with Jesus... Expect the unexpected. So he tells them this parable, verse, um, verses 5 through 8. A sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. Some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. I'm sure they're left sitting there hearing this, just perplexed. What is Jesus talking about? Isn't this guy a carpenter? What is he doing talking about farming? Why is he talking about sowing seed? And after Jesus tells this parable, he looks to the crowd and he says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. It's an interesting thing to say. Because the key phrase is ears to hear. Not just whoever has ears, let him hear, but ears to hear. The vast majority of people have ears, but not everyone has ears to hear. Uh, if, if anything shows us this truth, it is children. Children mostly come equipped with two ears. 
But whether they function and hear you is something altogether different. My daughter's new favorite phrase is, oh yeah, I forgot. <laughs> I'll look at her and I'll say, Lily, go do this, whatever. Two seconds later, she's doing something entirely different. Lily, what did I just tell you to do? It's either a blank stare or a, I don't know. No, you're supposed to be doing this. Oh yeah, I forgot. She's got, she's got ears, but they're not always ears to hear. It's in one, out the other. And not to just go back to back with sermon illustrations, but I couldn't resist because this also reminds me of a character on Seinfeld. <laughs> Shocker, I know. There's a guy in, in an episode, a guy in Elaine's office, his name is Bob, who uh, has a hearing aid. And conveniently, when asked to do certain jobs, he's, huh? What? He can't hear anything. It's convenient. He's got ears. He doesn't always have ears to hear. Jesus knows the crowd is listening to him. They're, they're hearing the sound of his voice. But are they hearing what he's saying? And the implications of Jesus' statement is that among those present, there must be some that have ears to hear and some that don't. Some are going to walk away pondering a profound truth and others are going to walk away confused thinking if they need to double-check their dirt. And afterwards, the disciples, they asked Jesus, what did this parable mean? I mean, Jesus, you had people from all over. And you're talking about this sower, and he's throwing seed into the merits of the soils. What, what are you talking about? And that's the nature of parables. They are stories that utilize relatable uh, earthly things to communicate this greater and spiritual truth. And Jesus tells them why he spoke this way. To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Those who have ears to hear will understand the secrets of the kingdom, but those who don't won't see, they won't understand. Parables are profound. They're life-giving if God has opened your eyes to see the truth and the beauty in them. But they can also be warnings of judgment for those whose eyes are blinded to the things of God. And, and Jesus is quoting Isaiah 6 as he tells his disciples this. That the, the hardness of heart that the people had toward God back in Isaiah's time is the same thing as in Jesus' day. Some may not see. They may not understand. And it's only by God's grace that anyone's eyes are opened to see. That they have ears to hear. And the disciples have the privilege of that grace as Jesus takes time to spell out exactly why he said what he said to the crowd that day. So Jesus first begins with what the seed is. Very brief explanation. The seed is the word of God. God's revelation of who he is and the reality of his kingdom. The truth that Christ has come to establish his kingdom according to his character. The, the seed is the gospel, the good news. Jesus has both declared this and he's demonstrated this many times throughout his ministry up until this point. 
as he taught in the synagogue, as he taught on the plains, as he's teaching in people's houses. We see this as he's ministered and he's healed people across the board, as we heard in the introduction today, right? Christ has come to establish his kingdom and call his people to himself. He's come to seek and save the lost. He's the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sins of the world. He's come to put an end to sin's tyranny and conquer it once and for all. That is the seed that is being scattered and that Christ will continue to scatter throughout his ministry. The truth of who Jesus is, that's the seed we are called to scatter today. The good news of the gospel of Christ. That Jesus, fully God, came down from glory, took on humanity to live a perfect sinless life among sinful, broken creation, a life that we couldn't live. And he died the brutal death in our place on the cross that we should have died, and he rose victorious from the grave, providing for all who would believe in him the promised inheritance of eternal life. That's the good news. That's the gospel. That's the seed. Now what Jesus doesn't explain is he doesn't say, here's who the sower is. He mentions that there's a sower, but he never says who that is. He doesn't say the sower is me. He doesn't say the sower is Peter, John, whoever. He doesn't define it. Why? Because the seed is the constant. But the sower is anyone in possession of that seed. Jesus is the sower in this immediate context, right? He's the one proclaiming the truth of the kingdom. But as good news is received and believed, the the task of sowing is then passed on to all who know that good news. Aside from Jesus himself, the sower is not that important. The seed is. Who's preaching it, who's spreading it, is not as important as what is being spread or preached. Right? The pastor in a a struggling church in the middle of nowhere, faithfully preaching the gospel, is just as important to the kingdom as the pastor of a mega church preaching the gospel to thousands. Because the seed is being spread. And it's not just pastors called to sow the seed, right? Everyone who calls themselves and a follower of Jesus is called to the mission of sowing the seed to the world around us, of spreading the gospel and making disciples. So if you're here today and you say, I'm a Christian, I follow Jesus, guess what? You're sowing seed. Declare truth. Demonstrate truth. Spread the truth widely. Spread it broadly. Right? We're, we're the sowers. But the important thing is, is to know that God is the one who's going to bring the growth. We sow the seed, God brings the growth. We are imperfect people spreading a perfect gospel. And it can produce life because we have a perfect God doing the work. And that's what we need to remember. Imperfect people, perfect gospel, serving a perfect God. And what Jesus explains to his disciples here is that as this seed is spread, it's going to fall in different kinds of soil. Because where there's revelation, there is response. And that's what we're going to look at. And the first soil that Jesus mentions is the path. The seeds falling along the path. See, in the fields back then, they would have these different walking paths going through them. Uh, People would 
actually pass through fields uh, on their way, or they would have to have a path in order to walk on to seed their field. And the person spreading the seed would have like a seed bag, and some seed would fall out of the bag, and they're, they're just they're chucking seed. They're spreading it all over. I don't, I don't do this stuff, so I don't know if this is what it looks like, but that's how I picture it. I just like seed for everyone. But as you're doing that, as you're sowing the seed, some of it is falling on the path. It's a hard service. It had been packed down from all the foot traffic day after day. Anything, so anything that drops on it is not going down and in, but it's just sitting on the surface. And as long as that seed sits on the surface, it is now subject to the external forces around it. And in the case of the parable with this seed, it get, would get trampled on by foot, it would get destroyed, or it would get devoured by the birds, Jesus tells us. And he tells his disciples, the the ones along the path are the ones who've heard. And the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. Verse 12, right? So this person has has heard the gospel, but it never penetrates the heart. It, It sits on the surface and is actually removed by the devil so that they can't believe and be saved. So Spiritual warfare is not a fictional thing, right? It's a reality. Paul makes it clear in Ephesians 6. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There's a battle going on as the gospel is proclaimed. And so where did the devil play defense? At the easiest place, where the hearts are the hardest, where he can just come in like, oh, I'm just going to pick up seed. If the seed of the gospel can't penetrate the heart, then a person cannot believe. And Satan is trying to make sure that those opposed to God remain opposed to God. Now when it comes to this whole idea of the devil and Satan, I think sometimes there's either a tendency for us to give him too much credit or not enough credit. Right? We give Satan too much credit when we presume that he actually has the power to harden hearts. He can't harden the heart, he can't soften the heart, but he can manipulate the people with the hard hearts. Satan is not just God's evil opposite. Like sometimes we think that, like there's God and there's Satan, and they're both just as powerful. One's good, one's evil. It's a battle for the ages. No, God wins. Satan is a created being with limitations. He's not omnipotent, he's not omnipresent. So we shouldn't give him more credit than he deserves, We also shouldn't give him too little credit as though he's not actively trying to stop the kingdom of God from advancing, as futile as that may be. But we can't pretend that he's not prowling like a lion seeking to devour, as Peter puts it in 1 Peter 5, 8. The enemy is at work. We don't want to give him too little credit and pretend that's not the case. We would be foolish to not heed the warning of Jesus here or the warnings of Paul or of Peter and many other who have told us it's a spiritual battle. The devil is at work. So we shouldn't give him too little credit. Not too much, not too little. Think of it in my mind. It immediately goes to terms of baseball because that's what I've played my whole life. But when you think of batters one through nine, it's really easy um, to, to think that, well, if you get to the eight or nine batter, they're not going to do anything. You give them too little credit. And you think, sure enough, here's two easy outs, and the next thing you know, 
they get a couple hits, they change the game, and that was the eight or nine guy. Sometimes the pitcher hits a home run, and you're like, whoa, I didn't know that guy could actually swing a bat. That's giving too little credit. They're in the lineup for a reason. They can hit. But you don't want to give them too much credit, right? You don't want to play them back at the warning track because that might come back to beat you as well. It's just knowing that each one in that lineup can do something and being prepared for it. The devil is active. We need to realize that he is active and we shouldn't give him too much or too little credit, but we should know that as we are sowing the seeds of the gospel, he's at work against us. Should we be praying against that? So if we're sharing the gospel with someone, they're not getting it and they're just rejecting it, we know two things are at play. A hard heart and the devil's playing defense. But what it's not is it's not a faulty message. It's not a bad seed. It's just landing on the path. And just because the seed lands on the path doesn't mean the sower stops sowing, right? The devil's power to take away the word is not final because God is the one who has authority over hearts. Right? A path, though it's packed down with the right tool, could be softened, could be dug up, could be tilled. God can take a hardened heart like stone and make it a heart of flesh. Ezekiel eleven nineteen. God can make a path into a fertile field by his power and by his grace. So as we sow, we should do so prayer, prayerfully, asking God to work. But the reality is, the harsh reality, the one that Jesus mentions, is not everyone has ears to hear. And for some, that message will sit on the surface and be rejected. And there's a second soil, the second response. Jesus tells them the soil on the rock. Verse 13, he says, And the ones on the rock are those who they hear the word, they receive it with joy, but these have no root. They believe for a while, and time of testing fall away. This is when we get into tougher territory. Things aren't just as black and white. Like, rejection is easy, right? Like, we trust and believe Jesus? No. Okay. Got it. I appreciate the honesty. But when the people represented by this soil, they answer that question, there's an enthusiastic yes, right? They receive the word, they hear it, and they receive it with joy. The excited mountaintop, youth retreat type response, being pumped, like, yes. He like really cares for people and stuff, right? Yeah, yeah, I want to follow that. Woo! Like, they're excited. The response shows promise. They receive the gospel with joy. Jesus says they believed for a little while. They didn't misunderstand what they were told. They believed it. But this belief is temporary. It's not lasting. Why? Because it was shallow. It's the soil. It's on the rock. The initial layer was good, but this rock beneath it, it can't actually put down roots to get the moisture it needs. It sits on the surface and it's, it's dried out. Jesus says that as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. This enthusiastic reception eventually winds up in apathetic rejection. Their belief was circumstantial. It was emotional. It felt good at the time, but when the reality of life hit, and the heat's cranked up and faith is tested, the response is, this is not what I signed up for. If following Jesus means trial and tribulation. I don't want any of that. Suffering? No thanks. 
I'm good. Jesus says they fall away. It's shallow. The problem wasn't the seed. The gospel was proclaimed. But because they still had a, a hardness, this hard layer in their hearts that did not penetrate down deep enough. And nothing comes out except a, a memory of a, a good experience that one time. Maybe that's some of you. You shot a hand up once. You filled out a little card. There was an altar call after a moving message, and it was, you were excited. There was a genuine, like, I want that. But soon after, you just went back to the way the things were. It doesn't have to stay that way. If God can till the soil of the hard path and make it fertile, he can break up the rocks beneath the surface as well. Just because you believed once and haven't really lived it out doesn't mean that, well, salvation's out of the cards for me. I'm that soil. No. God's grace is extended in, in the hearing of this word. Confess, repent, put your faith in Christ. Pray that he would soften your whole heart, that he would create an ability for roots of the gospel to go down deep. You might be sitting here today thinking of people who fall into this category. Don't give up on them. Pray for them. Declare and demonstrate the gospel to them. Sow the seed. As I said before, I don't see anywhere in the parable where it says the sower just doesn't sow the seed in those areas. You don't know what God can do. It's not our job to judge the worthiness of the soil. It's our job to sow the seed. God will prepare the land and God will bring about the growth. Third soil. The thorns. Jesus tells his disciples. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear. But as they go on their way, they're choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. In this case, the seed's been planted in pretty good ground. The message is heard. Maybe even very appealing. It's not like you can't develop roots, but within their heart, there are other desires or distractions that don't allow this seed to sprout into maturity. That there is not fruit that comes from the seeds planting. It, it can't mature. It's not of use. Jesus says there's three invasive thorns or weeds that take over the desires of their heart. Right, the first one we see, the cares. The cares of this life. Or worry. Worry can be a crippling thing. Someone who is a worrier has a, a hard time just thinking about anything else. It consumes them. And there are some people, when you talk to them, there's always crisis on their mind. One problem seems to come to a resolution, and as soon as it does, oh, you're not going to believe what's going on now. And they're just worried. They're, they're consumed with it. They're anxious about everything. Having problems and worry and cares, it's an entirely normal part of life. However, when they consume us, they suck 
the life from us. When they consume us, they, they distract us from seeing God, trusting God, relying on Him. That's why Paul tells the church in uh, the Philippian church, right? Rejoice in the Lord always again. I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Cares and worries will choke the life out of us if we do not surrender those to God himself. And the problem here is in the soil, those cares and those worries are so overwhelming that it overshadows the message of the seed that's been planted. And sometimes it's not just cares about life's circumstances. Sometimes it's, it's worrying about what everyone around you thinks of you. It's a huge thing. I mean, especially in a world of social media where it's just unrelenting, there's no escape, and you just worry about what everyone's thinking, what everyone's saying, and it can just put a barrier on one's faith and trust in Christ because it's like, well, if I follow him, I'm going to experience this. I don't want to. I'm too worried about what's going to happen. I'm just, I can't do this anymore. The mocking, the ridicule, or even the rejection. You may hear the gospel, but your submission to worries are greater than your willingness to submit to the call of Jesus. And that thorn, that weed, chokes. That's just one of life's depleting thorns that Jesus mentions. The next thing he says here is riches. The next invasive thorn that chokes out life is a desire and a pursuit of riches. And I was immediately reminded of Jesus' interaction with the rich young man. And this man runs up to Jesus. And he's like, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus looks at him and he says, you know the commandments. And the young man even says, yes, I've kept them from my youth. Jesus then brings it home for the young man. This is in Mark chapter 10. He says, and Jesus, looking at him, and I love this, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. Disheartened by the saying, the young man went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. When riches are our ultimate, an ultimate thing in our life, they are our source of joy. This man wanted Jesus so long as his idol, his riches, weren't affected. Right? He comes up enthusiastic, but then leaves disheartened. We need money. We need certain possessions. But when those things become ultimate things, they become idols. And idols prevent us from bowing our knee to Jesus because they take the centrality or the, in our lives where Jesus needs to be the center of our worship. And that's why Jesus says in that same passage, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When we pursue things other than Christ, we're putting him to the side. And those things actually be, begin to take over like a weed in a garden or in a field. And it chokes the life-giving power of the gospel out. 
pursuit of riches and things can consume and choke. And that's the same thing that happens with the third thorn, which is really, honestly, can be connected. Pleasures of this life. The cares, the riches, and pleasures of life. The pursuit of earthly pleasures, right? Sometimes this can match up with riches. I'm assuming with great wealth, someone can inform me, comes the opportunity to pursue more and more pleasures on this earth. But even without riches, there are plenty of pleasures that prevent us from submitting to Jesus, to the call of the gospel. I think of vices, addictions that can grip our hearts and minds over the gospel. All kinds of pleasures from substance abuse to sexual addiction to trying to escape the reality of this life and and losing oneself in the world of the internet or even in the world of gaming. Whatever it is, there are pleasures out there that are grasping for our attention. And you can look in your own lives and you can think, what thing do I really love pursuing? I don't have to list a list and if I don't say it, you're safe. Like, that's not how it works. You know the depths of your own hearts. When we're so wrapped up in chasing the pleasures of the flesh, we think we need to, sur- to surrender them. If we think we need to surrender them, then we're like, well, then what's left? What's left? If I, if I, if I don't have this, if I, what, what do I have left? But let us not forget the truth of Psalm 16, 11. It says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Whatever pleasures are found in, in earthly things will surely fade. But the pleasure that comes from knowing Christ and the following, following Him, that pleasure is eternal because it's rooted, not in a sensory feeling, but in a perfect and, and holy, sustaining God. The thorny soil is a soil filled with thorns and weeds of idolatry. And we really have three categories of idols here, right? Worry or cares, riches, and pleasures. And any one of these can blind us to the beauty of Christ. But just like with all the other soils, right? We know that weeds and thorns can be dealt with. They can be dug out of the soil. They can be uprooted. They can be tossed away. And God is the one who is able to do that work. And eventually, whether you be the path, whether you're on the soil built on the rock, whether you're in some thorny soil, through God's grace, we can arrive at the third response, fourth response, the good soil, belief. Right? This is the fertile soil. As for the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. In this soil that the seed, gospel seed is planted, it grows and it yields fruit. This is the soil of belief and faith. So if you're sitting here right now, right, and you're a believer in Christ, this is not the time for you to be like, good soil, baby, let's go. Look at me. Look at me. Good soil. Anyone who is in the good soil category is only there because 
God did the work of either softening the path, breaking up the rocks, or removing the thorns from your life. Right? We're only able to receive the seed into the good soil once God has prepared it. We're not born good soil. Listen to the words of Paul in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. It's a long passage, but this is how we start. And you were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming age he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I can't say this enough. Good soil is only good soil because of the grace of God. Good soil is only good soil because of the grace of God. The grace of God that brings about belief is the grace that sustains that belief. God doesn't do the work of cultivating the ground for a harvest only to let it return to ruin. Those that God has called to himself, he will not let go. So the believer hears the word, right? Jesus says, and holds fast to it with an honest and good heart. And we are only able to hold, hold fast with an honest and good heart because God has made it that way. I mentioned Ezekiel 11 earlier. Here's the reference. And I will give them one heart and a new spirit, and I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh so that they may walk in my statutes and, excuse me, keep my rules and obey them. They shall be my people, and I will be their God. Softness of heart, a, a heart that follows after God, comes by the work in the grace of God, by his spirit, right? We are able to hold fast to his word because he is the one holding us. I know I'm throwing a lot of scripture out there, but just the Bible will say it better than I would. 1 Corinthians 4, 4 to, uh, 1, 4 to 8. Right? God is the one sustaining us. And this is what Paul says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you are enriched in him in all speech and knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God prepares the soil. God maintains the soil. And when he does that, 
Growth can happen and fruit will show. I think it just is important to remind us that God is the one who does that work, who sustains us. Because we think it's all, you know, God saves us, but then it's all on us from there. And if that's the truth, we're all damned. But it's God's grace that sustains us. And growth can happen. We can bear fruit. And the final thing Jesus says that the plant and the good soil will do is bear fruit with patience. There should be evidence of a changed heart, a changed life. I think of the, the, the fruit of spirit, fruit of the spirit, Paul mentions in Galatians 5, right? That their love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are all attributes that should, should mark a believer in Christ that has the Spirit dwelling within them. But that's not all going to happen all at once. Like uh, a switch is just flipped and all of a sudden, oh, I'm very patient. Before, I was very impatient. Like, no, it's a process. Jesus says, bear fruit with patience. It's not an overnight thing. Sometimes we forget that about the sanctification process. We, we mustn't beat ourselves up or others up because they don't get everything right right away. There's a tendency for us to do that. God will continue to do the work so that over time, more and more fruit will show forth. It's a process. I know for a fact there's people in this room who, who could testify the work that God has done in my life, right? You've now got to observe me over 10 years of time. Sorry. But, you know, hopefully I don't necessarily act, react, or respond, or whatever, in the same way I would have 10 years ago when I first started, by His grace. With that said, there's still plenty of work to be done in the soil. But it's with patience Now remind us of this, even healthy crops don't always pr- produce the best fruit, right? When um, we're heading towards corn on the cob season, and uh, one thing my wife does when she buys corn and gets mad at me if I don't do it, is like you got to peel back, the, peel back the, the husk or whatever and look and make sure there's not like some decrepit piece of corn in there that, that just looks sketchy. So you got to rip it open, look at it, good corn. Now that demented-looking piece of corn that some find that's, like, got no kernels on it and it's slightly brown or whatever, like, that came from a stalk that may have had plenty of good ears of corn on it, I think. I don't know. Like, if you're a farmer and you're like, no, that's not how corn works, you get my point. I'm not going to stand up here and act like I'm an agriculturalist. That word alone lets you know that that's not the case. But good corn crop can still yield some sad, deranged, subpar ears of corn. We're going to yield some bad fruit. But our hope is rooted in the fact that as God does his work, we receive forgiveness, we receive grace, and he's going to continue a work in us that we will produce more and more good fruit. And as we produce that fruit, we're going to hope Others see it, and that we can point them back to the one who even brought any of the fruit to fruition. The good soil holds fast with an honest and good heart, in an honest and good heart, and bears fruit with patience. So those are the soils. Rejection, reaction, 
distraction, belief. So as we're wrapping up here, I just want to give us some practical do's and don'ts. Not normally just a straightforward do and don't guy, but it just seemed like it worked. I don't know. So here's a do. Take time, examine your heart and your life. Where are you at? Do you believe that Jesus came to save you from sin? That he came as God made flesh to live a perfect life and died a cross to bear the penalty for your sin and rose from the grave victorious, triumphing over it? Do you believe that you are sinful in need of a Savior? Are you interested in following Christ, but you're worried about what it might cost you? Examine your own heart. Are your ears hearing this morning? I pray that they would truly hear and hear the truth of the gospel and that God would prepare the soil of your heart that the seed would be planted this morning and would take root and that you would trust Christ. Here's a don't for us. Don't try and become the local soil expert. Right? This passage is not for us to walk around the reference guide and go from person to person and look them over and go, hmm, rocky, shape up. Ooh, look at your weed. Woohoo! You're really consumed. Right? We're, we're not out there to be the, the, the soil experts. Yes, there, there's going to be people in our lives that we can see clear as day. They fall into one of these categories. If we have a mirror, we might even see that person, right? But we know it because of the relationships we have with them. So what we should do is pray for them. Ask God to do the work. We're not trying to go around and play God and determine everyone's eternal destiny. That's not our job. That's God's job. Our job is the next do on our list. Do. Sow the truth of the gospel. That's our job. We can pray for the lost and share the truth of the gospel. Spread it wide. Spread it far. And pray that God's will would be done. God will prepare the soil. We need to be faithful in sowing. It's our call to join him on mission in making disciples. The last thing I have is a don't. Don't allow the warnings in this passage to, to, to bring unnecessary doubt of the work of God, of what God has done in your life. If you know Christ as Savior, and you know the truth of the gospel, and you, you know that ultimately, yes, my trust is in him, but you've had some bad fruit lately, don't automatically just assume, like, oh, I'm bad soil. I'm bad soil. Like, no. God is a good God. And our lives are full of ups and downs. God is the one holding us and sustaining us through the ups, through the hills, through the valleys. Don't let this passage completely rock you and bring you to the place of, of worry about, well, is God really, is he really keeping me? He is at work. He can do it. Yes. He is the one holding us. He's sustaining us. So confess sin that needs to be confessed, right? Repent. And then walk in joy and the forgiveness that's available through Christ. Rest in the gospel. The work has been done. Christ has defeated death. He has given his life. He's risen from the grave. And the God who saved us by his grace will sustain us by his grace. So the band can make their way up. And a song that I, I wanted us to sing this morning, thinking about this passage, is a song called, He Will Hold Me Fast. 
And may this song serve as a reassurance that God is the one who saved you by his grace, and he's going to keep you by his grace. And I just want us to hear the words of this song before we sing it together. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path, for I know my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. Those he saves are his delight. Christ will hold me fast. Precious in his holy sight, he will hold me fast. He'll not let my soul be lost. His promises shall last. Bought by him at such a cost, he will hold me fast. For my life he bled and died, Christ will hold me fast. Justice has been satisfied, he will hold me fast. Raised with him to end this life, he will hold me fast. Till our faith is turned to sight when he comes at last. And the chorus is simple, he will hold me fast, he will hold me fast. Why? Because my Savior loves me so. He will hold me fast. Let's bow our heads. Father, I pray this morning that, that you would be at work tilling the soil so that the seeds of the gospel that have been sown would take root, would grow into believing faith. And I pray for those here with, with hard hearts, soften them so that the evil one cannot come and snatch it away. I pray for those who are here who, who the soil is on the rock. I ask that you would break up that rocky layer. That the seed of the gospel would, would, would not be hindered by the rock, but would actually grow deep roots and would not dry up. I pray for those with the distractions and the thorns that are growing in their life, whether it's their worry or the pursuit of, of, of things and riches or this pursuit of, of pleasures. Take away those idols. Remove them so that the beauty of Christ can be seen, can be known. I pray for repentance of sin and, and faith and trust in Christ. And I pray those for here who are believers, who follow you. Help, help us to rest in your finished work. In the grace that you called us to yourself. The grace that you sustain us by. And by your power, we ask that you would show much fruit in our life, not for our own sake, but for your glory, for the sake of the gospel, that many more would come to know you. Help us to sow the seed far and wide, and we rest in that you are the one who does the work. We know that you love us. We know that you will hold us fast. Help us to see that clearly this morning, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.